Section 26 of Stories of the First American Animals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Trevor Johnston. Stories of the First American Animals by George Langford. Mammut, the last of the mastodons. Part 3. The leaders of the whitetails and of the mastodons faced each other. I come for my people with a message, said the buck. Your herd has done us great harm. We wish them to leave. Harm? What have they done? demanded the surprised Burbo. Our feeding grounds are ruined, the other replied bitterly. You mastodons are so wasteful. You trample down and destroy much more than you eat, and it's worry enough for us to see how much it takes to fill your big stomachs. The bigger the stomach, the bigger the worry, Burbo retorted. We mastodons have our troubles, too. But that does not help us, said the buck. We were here first, happy and contented until you came. There will be nothing left for either of us unless you go away. The bull leader pondered deeply. Yes, it was all true enough. His people were indeed wasteful eaters. Their huge feet destroyed far more than went into their mouths. Furthermore, the feeling had been growing upon him for several days that the time was near at hand, when the herd must soon be seeking new fields. Their present food supply was fast becoming exhausted. He had no quarrel with the whitetails. Deer and Mastodon had gotten along remarkably well together. Yes, he could do as asked, and it would be a good thing all around. "'We will leave today,' he announced briefly, whereupon the buck went his way rejoicing." Word was soon passed among the herd that the time for departure had arrived. All made ready and waited for Burbo to give the signal, or rather they waited for Mammut to awaken. None thought of deserting the young Mastodon, so they all stood together swaying from side to side, blowing dust on their backs and doing various other things to pass the time. Mammut awoke at last, rested and recovered, although weak and hungry. However, a warm drink of milk worked wonders, and after walking about a few steps to ease his cramped muscles, he was in condition to proceed. The moment of departure was at hand. Burbo took his place in the lead and the march began. From the cover of the woods, the deer people were interested spectators of the sudden leave-taking of their now unwelcome guests. White-tailed bucks, does, and fawns concealed in the distance behind every bush and tree looked wonderingly on. They saw a wave of great brown backs and tossing trunks, capped with gleaming ivory, rolling away from them to the west. The mastodons marched off without once turning to look behind them, and the land of the Huron and Sandusky saw them no more. Mammut trotted close to his mother's side. He had not yet fully regained his strength, and it was hard for him to keep up with the herd. Every one of their big steps covered as much ground as did his three and so his legs had to twinkle three times to their one in order to hold his place in the line of the march. He puffed and grunted, the foam gathered upon his flanks and his heart beat like a trip hammer. Each of his pudgy feet seemed to have a big stone tied to it. He wished that his people would only stop a few moments or slow up, and thus give him a chance to catch his breath, but still they lumbered on. Mammut began to falter. He uttered no complaint, but he was dreadfully tired, and try as he would, his legs could not be made to move fast enough. He dropped back, and then, softly, and from some mysterious source, a huge trunk curled down and around his body beneath the armpits. Another pressed gently upon his rump. The stones dropped from his feet, 
Half of his body, the heaviest half, seemed to be floating through space. The lighter half was being propelled by that which pressed upon his rear. Gradually he regained his wind, his heartbeat sank to normal, and he found time to learn what had happened to effect this welcome change. Hosta's trunk wound about his body, was pulling him forward while another of the herd was pushing from behind. With such help, Mammut was enabled to keep up. However, he was glad enough to rest when the herd made a short stop for drink and refreshment. Gradually, his wind improved, his muscles toughened, and it was not many days before he could do his part well and with little assistance. For weeks, the mastodons kept on the move through western Ohio, veering occasionally to the north or south, but in general heading toward the land of the setting sun. Wherever food abounded, they halted, only to move on again when the supply was exhausted. Dry unforested regions were crossed at top speed. Hard, dry grass was of no more use to these teat-toothed elephants than salt water is to a shipwrecked sailor. None of the herd could chew it, so they were obliged to hurry on or starve. This roving life suited Mammut perfectly. It meant that he was hearing and smelling something new with every step he took. It was also bewildering and interesting. He loved traveling from place to place, and then to cap the climax of his nomadic life, he was treated to a journey over and through the water. The mastodons traversed a broad forested region and emerged upon the bank of a broad river which barred their way. Here they stopped to rest and cool off, for these great animals were wise enough to know the danger of attempting a long swim without due preparation. In the meantime, Burbo devoted his attention to the opposite bank, sniffing it carefully at long range. This was to guard against surprise attack by panthers or wolves who might be lurking there. Such enemies, which were ordinarily to be scorned, might easily prove formidable to even a mastodon after a long, enervating swim and a landing in a more or less exhausted condition. Mammut saw the river and it interested him greatly. He noticed that the onward march was halted and wondered what would happen next. Burbo's actions impressed him. He saw no reason for it at all, but minds wiser than his were there to decide, so he waited with the others. Then came the order to advance. When the bull leader trumpeted shrilly and waded into the water, the herd followed. Hasta and Mammut were among the last, with several cows bringing up the rear. Mammut squealed with delight as the many huge feet splashed the water over his body in showers. He loved to wade. He kicked his hardest to make as much commotion as the others did. The river bottom gradually fell away from beneath his feet. The water, which had barely reached his wrists and ankles, now rose to above his elbows. A few more steps, and it covered the lower half of his body. Some washed into his mouth and down his throat. He coughed, shut his mouth, and breathed through his long nose, holding the tip aloft, as the others about him were doing. It was all very interesting, and the water was delightfully refreshing, but he was becoming just a little frightened and wishing that the river bottom would stop slipping away from under him. He, for one, was willing to turn around and go back to where he came from, and just when he was wondering how he could get himself out of the mess he had stumbled into, down he went, head and all. One terrified squeal, then the water entered his mouth and choked him. His legs thrashed like piston rods as they sought vainly for support. At this critical moment, Hosta's trunk hovered before his eyes. Mammut clutched it as a drowning man clutches at a straw, and still his legs worked frantically. Water could be walked on, he soon discovered, that is, if he walked fast. Even though there was nothing solid beneath him, the motion of his legs kept him afloat. 
It was his mother, of course, that made this possible. Her trunk prevented his sinking. He did not realize at first that the life preserver which he clutched so tightly had gradually relaxed and that he was keeping afloat almost entirely by his own efforts. Hosta's trunk supported scarcely any of his weight. He put on more steam and went plowing through the water like a tiny tugboat. To his intense delight and astonishment, it suddenly dawned upon him that it was not his mother but himself who produced this marvelous result. He was running through the water, swimming, some called it, and he was doing it all alone. This was the young mastodon's first swimming lesson, and he was a swimmer before he had reached midstream. Two-thirds of the way across, and he found time to look about and see what the others were doing. He was in the midst of a flotilla of brown and hairy foreheads, before each of which a trunk tip projected above the water like the top of a periscope. Three-fourths of the journey, and he was swimming like mad to beat those in front of him and take the lead. Chug, chug, chug. Then he stubbed his toes on a sunken snag and was walking once more on the river bottom. Up, up this time instead of down. The voyage was ended, and such fun it had been. Never had Mamut so enjoyed himself. He was splashing his hardest to overtake his father and be the first one ashore when something clutched his tail and nearly pulled it out by the roots. It was his mother who thus restrained him. Her son was growing overbold. Burbo must be the first to land and prepare the way. Those who thought differently needed a taste of stern discipline. Meanwhile, the bull leader led the way up the slippery bank choosing an elevated position to halt and keep close watch until every member of the herd was gathered about him. It did not dawn upon Mamut that Burbo, not his mother, was the master of the herd, until the big bull took his young son in hand and taught him the respect to do himself, the herd's acknowledged leader. Mamut was too young to rebel against this new power over him, but Burbo saw that in time he would have a vigorous young male to deal with. He, a bull leader past his prime, could not forever lead, and the day was coming when he must yield his place to the rising generation. However, Mamut had no thought about assuming any of life's responsibilities, at least until he was weaned. This last name period, however, was the beginning of a marked change in his young life. The suckling calf became a vegetable eater and was obliged to hunt for and find his own food. From then on he fared no better than the grown-ups. He learned from what it meant to feel the real pinch of hunger, the rigors of extreme heat and cold, the hostility of flesh-eating animals and various other discomforts. He experienced his first fear of the elements, the thunder rumbling in the sky, lightning flashes, and strong winds that bowed the tallest trees. These and other trials he faced as best he could, gaining strength and courage with bitter experience. He lost his childish ways rapidly for now he was but a mastodon struggling to exist in an environment and in a climate unsuitable to his kind. He began to see more of the dark side of existence and less of its joys. As he matured, gradually he lost all feeling of dependence upon his mother. He even began to feel a sense of responsibility concerning her welfare and the welfare of the herd. He shed the last of his baby teeth. One after another they were discarded, three from the front of each jaw. New and permanent ones rolled up and forward from behind to replace them, in the manner peculiar to all elephants. His tusks thickened and lengthened. They were nothing more than his two upper incisor teeth in whose sockets were the means for unlimited growth. They were like beaver teeth, only growing forward and out of his mouth instead of back into it. 
A lazy mastodon, like a lazy beaver, was one that neglected the care of his teeth. Tusks were meant to be used constantly and thus kept worn down, for they grew fast like fingernails and nothing but wear could keep them from curling about so grotesquely as to become absolutely useless in time. At the age of six, Mamut began to look upon his tusks as matters of prime importance. They would take care of him, provided he took care of them, that is, if he used and kept them worn down to proper length. This he did by giving them daily exercise, uprooting small trees and plowing deep furrows in the ground. With his continued digging, he became a straight tusk, for his ivory weapons were prevented from attaining great curvature and were ever sharp-pointed and directed forward like sabers. The herd continued to look upon Mammut as a baby even after he attained his eighth year. Panthers and wolves often cast longing eyes upon the youngster. A full-grown mastodon was too large for them to manage, but a half-grown calf was a different matter. Hasta and the other animals realized this and guarded the youngster zealously. Rarely would they permit him to leave their sight. It was not long before Mammut became conscious of this restraint. He chafed under it and finally rebelled. One day, when the woods rang with a familiar cat screech, he slipped away unnoticed and hurried through the woods in the direction of the sound. Pam the cougar, crouched full length upon a low-hanging branch, heard the snapping of twigs. A few moments later, a round figure with pillar legs appeared. It was the young mastodon coming toward him and alone. Pam's green eyes glistened, his jaws dripped eager expectancy. Mammut was in his power at last. He crouched motionless and waited. The young mastodon drew nearer, sniffing the air and keeping close watch about him. His nose told him that he of the screeching voice was close at hand. Unfortunately, he did not think to look up at the overhanging branch as he passed beneath it. Suddenly, an unearthly scream rang out. Before Mammut could collect his startled wits, a tawny body descended upon him. The next moment, he was in the clutches of a snarling cougar that had fastened itself upon his forehead. The youngster squealed with fear at the suddenness of it all. Then a spasm of rage seized him as he felt the big cat's claws piercing his tender trunk. He shook the fury that tormented him as a terrier shakes a rat. Pam lost his hold and fell heavily to the ground. Mammut kneeled and thrust. It was the right idea, but in his eagerness he misjudged. Both tusks sank deeply into the ground, missing the cougar by inches. Before he could wrench them free, Pam wiggled out of danger and beat a hasty retreat, thankful to have escaped with no worse damage than a few broken ribs. Pam lost his appetite for mastodon veal. The woods often rang with his screeching, but he invariably held his tongue whenever Mammut appeared to answer the challenge, only to unloose it once more when the young bull was gone. That screeching irritated Mammut beyond measure. He wished that his enemy would either fight or keep quiet. The Mastodons entered the forest of Minster. Here the wolves began to grow troublesome, for the hunting had grown poor and a herd of elephants meant an abundance of food. The wolves followed persistently, keeping well back in the daytime, but coming closer under the cover of night. When all was dark and the herd would have rested, they were treated to an unearthly chorus of howls and snarls as their tormentors glided about them among the trees. These concerts greatly disturbed the mastodons. There seemed no way of dealing with enemies that chose the night time for their activities and used only guerrilla methods of warfare. The wolves were too wise to dash blindly upon a herd of mastodons. 
Their way was to spring out, a few at a time, snap at a leg or a trunk, and then rush to cover again. It was a wearing process that gave the herd much worry and little rest. It terrified Mahmoud at first, but as he became aware that many of these insults were directed at his own person, his fear turned to rage. One night the pack was feeling overbold. He heard them howling to each other. If only that fat little calf would come out from behind the others. What a feast we would have. Mahmoud squealed with rage. Before anyone could stop him, he squirmed through the hedge of pillar legs around him and was on the outside of the herd, stamping his feet and bellowing at the top of his lungs. Why don't you come out yourselves? Mm! Shame on you to be afraid of a baby mastodon. Pandemonium broke loose. The wolf pack accepted the challenge and rushed upon him, howling and snarling like fury. To their din were added the squeals and bellows of the herd as they rushed madly about in the darkness in a frantic effort to put themselves between Mammut and the tempest he had stirred up. The youngster was now beside himself. Those who would have helped him, he butted out of his way. He dashed headlong into the mass of wolves, charging, backing, turning and trampling them underfoot. He was a steamroller run wild. The uproar became deafening. Bellows, squeals, howls, and yelps, with the yelps fast increasing in volume as one after another of the wolves fell beneath the young mastodon's flying feet. The fierce brutes became demoralized. They wavered. It was soon every one for himself. The pack finally scattered to the four winds, leaving Mammut in complete possession of the field. The herd rested well the balance of that night. Their sleep was unbroken the next, and the next and many nights after. That last night's scrimmage must have discouraged the wolf pack of Minster, for they troubled the Mastodons no more. This episode opened to the herd's eyes. Their mascot was no longer a baby, but a fighting bull. The protected had become a protector. Mammut's calfhood came to a sudden end. But for all that, he was still the last calf. Not one had appeared since the day of his birth. It would appear that he not only was, but would remain the last. The original count of 39 had narrowed down to 20. Several individuals had become mired. To be mired was to die a lingering death, for no mastodon dared risk his own life to aid an imprisoned comrade. It was not cowardice that prompted them to desert one of their own kind, but the knowledge that such unfortunates were doomed and beyond all aid. Sickness took by far the heaviest toll. Sudden changes of climate brought on colds, rheumatism, and other ailments. Trivial wounds festered and became fatal. Exposure and lack of proper nourishment undermined their constitutions, leaving them susceptible to the ravages of disease. One of the oldest animals went mad and ran screaming through the woods, soon to batter herself to death against the trees. Another perished in the drifts during a blizzard. Thus the mastodons dropped off one by one. Finally, Hosta became ill, and her stomach would no longer retain nourishment. She weakened rapidly. She fell out of line, although still struggling on. One of the herd dropped back, too, and marched behind her, pushing her forward with head and trunk. The one who pushed was Mammut. His childhood days were not entirely forgotten, as he did his best to help the one who had watched over him so tenderly in the past. But Hosta was beyond all aid. For a time she struggled on, but finally her strength failed, and she pitched forward to her knees. She was dead even as she swayed and rolled upon her side. Mammut trumpeted a mournful dirge. He stood over her until certain that she was at rest forever and in no more need of his assistance. 
Then he hurried to rejoin the herd. No words were said. The mastodons marched on gloomily and silent. Hasta's turn had come, and there was no changing fate's decree. Mammut's temple throbbed. His brain seethed with rebellion. Why was it that his mother and those who had gone before her were denied the right to that life which all the rest of the world was enjoying? What were the mysterious forces that wrought such havoc among his people? He would have rushed upon them and trampled them underfoot had they but presented themselves. But they were unknown forces that worked insidiously and unseen. He could do nothing, and the knowledge enraged even as it perplexed him. The count was now nineteen. Burbo's eyesight began to fail. His power of scent became enfeebled. There were times when he stopped, uncertain of direction and too conscientious to lead blindly. He lost flesh and aged rapidly. Mahmoud observed these symptoms of gradual decline with much concern. Each day he shifted his position in the line, nearer and nearer to his ailing sire. Finally he walked shoulder to shoulder with the big bull, aiding him with his own sight and scent to watch over and lead the herd. One morning, after the mastodons had secured their night's rest and were ready to proceed, Burbo did not rise. He crouched on elbows and knees, with chin resting upon his forelimbs like one asleep. The herd crowded about him, trembling and venting their anxiety with subdued bellows. Mamut sniffed the prostrate figure. Burbo was dead. The young bull ground his teeth. Again the hidden enemy had struck. Every atom of his fighting spirit arose in wrath to contend with that deadly foe which fought unseen. The herd faced disaster. Now they were without a leader at a time when one was most needed. All were lost unless a substitute could be found to take Burbo's place. The cows stood huddled together, grazing helplessly at the dead giant. Hope had left them, and they were resigned to despair. Suddenly the smallest of the herd detached himself from the group and faced the shrinking cows. "'Follow me!' he bellowed in a voice of authority. All looked up amazed. A champion had arisen to watch over them. Hope returned to quicken the beating of every dulled, aching heart. Without a word, the cows fell obediently into line and marched briskly away behind their new leader, Mammut, the stripling mastodon. End of section 26